Hey, welcome to the Jesus, Sex, and Politics podcast. I'm Micah. I'm Nathan. And here we talk about all the things the culture doesn't want to talk about. And that might scare you. All right. Well, we are back. And uh, again, I know I've said this already a couple times. Um, Nathan uh, has been on vacation for the last week. So I'm just taking this uh, this show on the road solo, if you will. He'll be back uh, next week. But um, we are... We are in a uh, a really amazing season. If you're if you like politics, I think if you like politics, you just geek out on all the things that are happening federally, state level, and local level. Um, but so often, many times, people come to me and say, "Michael, what do you do? How do you how do you engage in this process?" and 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 just people don't know what they don't know. They don't know the process, and and God's word uh, is very clear on this. If my people perish for lack of knowledge, is what the Lord says. Is not they don't perish because they're bad people. They don't perish because they don't want what's right. They perish because they don't know how to do or how to accomplish or how to make things happen. And interestingly enough, with King Solomon, when he prayed for wisdom uh, early on in his reign, he asked the Lord for wisdom and knowledge so that he could lead his God's people well. And so often, God's people have wisdom in America, but boy, we lack knowledge. We don't know the process. We don't know how to be effective and engaged. So so we have brought in some really incredible uh, just uh, movers and shakers in the political world today. And we had, um, we had the, we had one of the guests on last week, uh, which is Micah Clark. So Micah Clark from the American Family Association. Thank you for, for being here again with us. Um, but then we also have Marla Ayler. Marla Ayler is a Westfield resident, uh, and I would call her uh, activist mama warrior, like extraordinaire. Like she just is literally uh she knows the process she loves studying the process she's going to she's going to college for uh just political um uh just policy what, what's your major marla what do you what well, do you it's mean? actually business administration but the concentration has been in public administration which has allowed me to take courses that talk like right now i'm taking a course in special interest groups wow. um i've taken a class on globalization we've talked about that in the past you know how much i loved that which is you and you're taking it from uh new hampshire southern new hampshire university which is not the beacon of conservatism so i'm sure there's a lot of uh there's a lot of ideology they're trying to shove down your throat which i think would be fun to watch them try it has been really (laughs) tough and a challenge um to to make sure that my conservative values haven't been overridden by liberal ideology but (laughs) We're making a go of it, and I'll be done soon. Thank goodness. Odds that you convert the professor to conservatism? Zero. (laughs) (laughs) Zero. Good to know. Perhaps. (laughs) I mean, the the, the thing that I hope most for is that I can have some influence with some of my younger classmates. Good, good. Awesome. Well, thank you both for being here. Today, we are going to be looking at, at the process and how the process works specifically at a state legislative level. So we've got federal, we've got local, but we've also got state government. And so this is all about the state government. Micah Clark from the American Family Association. How many years have you been working in state government? Since 1990, I did an internship after I was out of college, uh, so it's been 32 years. This wow. is my 31st session lobbying down there as a voice for families with either the Indiana Family Institute for 10 or the American Family Association of Indiana for 21 now. Wow, amazing. So you know what you're doing. If there's anybody that's... Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to brag yeah. or anything. Well, no, yeah. I, I don't know that I know what I'm doing. I, I, I'm fortunate <laughs> that we have a system in Indiana 
you know, politicians take a lot of heat here, but we really do have a system I think is what our founders really want. A part-time legislature, citizen uh, legislators, not professionals. You know, there are some who've been there a long time, but most of them are business owners. They've got families, they've got other things going on. They're in there from January till about April and they rely on a lot of outside sources for for information. And I think that's good. They're not, you know, people would be shocked if they went down to the state house and the legislator said, Hey, come back to my office. And they walked back and saw the cubicle they're in yeah. because these guys are not in big offices. It's not like you might think of a congressman. They, they share staff members. Mm-hmm. A lot of them answer on their own phones, answer their own mail. Uh, they have interns that help with that too, but these are not, uh, guys who are really out of touch with the public. So I'm going to ask some real basic questions here for the for the sake of uh, maybe people who are just getting into politics. You said they're not congressmen. A lot of people think congressmen are just lawmakers. So what's the difference between a state legislator and a congressman? About $120,000. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the uh, congressman makes a full-time year-round salary that is over is six-figure salary. And who would a congressman be? Victoria Sparts is yep. your newest congressman okay. in Hamilton County. It would be... And they're uh, the, the representatives right, in Washington. Washington, D.C. Okay, so right, when you say right. congressman, you're looking at right. uh, the representatives to Washington. Someone from yeah. Indiana who went to yeah. Washington. There's nine of those. And uh, in Indiana, we have 100 House members and 50 senators. Um, they all work part-time. And that um, is, that's for the state, going back to the, the state, state level. Yep. And their yep. salary is technically like, I think, 10000 or $12,000. Now, they make more than that because of mileage and per diem, but these guys are not really getting rich. I think the max, if you add everything, all their benefits together, forty to 60000 for a job that technically goes January through April, but they really are legislators year round. Oh so yeah. They're speaking, they're campaign, yeah. they're speaking, they're hearing yep. from people. And in the off session, when they're not in session, that's a lot of times when they're crafting bills, they may hear about a problem in their community, you know, needing something. And that's where they get a lot of their ideas for bills. Okay. And then they have staff that are on staff with, with the, um, LSA, the legal side, uh, Legislative Services Agency, where attorneys will draft legislation at any time of the year for them or help them with that. But it's it's a it's a big job for them. I mean, we should, we the Bible teaches us to to teach treat people in respect who deserve respect, and those who are putting authority over us, even if we don't agree with them, deserve our respect. You know, there's not a lot of my agree with on a lot of things down there, but I do respect the office that they hold. Yeah, that's good. That's good, Marla. When you're out in the community and you like I said, you're an activist extraordinaire. Um, what stands out to you when, uh, when it comes to what people don't know about the political process? Well, the process in and of itself, people seem to think that a public forum is the right time and place to ask challenging questions and expect an answer. And of course the, in a public hearing, you're there to give your testimony and there, I think there is largely an, an idea that someone's going to answer you back with a sense of urgency right there in that time. And that's not what they're there to do. They're there to really hear your opinion. And then you hope that they'll get back with you at some point uh, with a reasonable answer to your questions or object objections. Um, so in, in this case um, at the state legislature last, the last two weeks have been my first foray into testimony at the state house um, but of course, I would treat them with the same respect, uh, much like Micah just touched on. You know, there there should be a reverence for the office that they hold. They've gone through the challenges of getting elected by their constituency, um, and they deserve that respect. Um, by the same token, if you if you want those questions answered, when and how that happens is completely different. Yeah. 
You know, a question I get a lot of times too, a good segue into this is, can anybody testify at the state house? And the answer is yes. I mean, this is a public forum. It's a public office. Now, if you don't know what you're talking about, they're talking about a bill on, on underground storage tanks and environmental concerns, and you know nothing about that, don't testify on that. But if something's near and dear to your heart, like your children or an education issue or something that you have experience in, you know, legislators rely on public testimony to hear from people where these laws have actually affected them or they have actual concerns. So all you have to do is go sign up for the bill you're concerned about, tell them who you are, and usually they limit your testimony to three or four minutes, um, especially if it's a, it's a lot of testimony. But anybody can testify. It's not just professional lobbyists from the Chamber of Commerce, the teachers' unions, or whatever special interest group. Now, now with with that, when, when you testify, so you're going down to speak on giving your thoughts on a potential bill mm-hmm. that would become a law, uh, whether you're for it or against it, and why or why not. And then um, how how do you sign up to do that? Tell, take us through the process. Maybe I'd love to hear, um, uh, maybe start with Marla, because you just, I think you just testified for the first time uh, this past legislative session just a few few weeks ago, I think, right? And That's right. you'd never gone through the process. So so what was it like when you went down there? How did you research? Uh, did you know what you were doing? You walked in, like, I mean, everything from what door do you use to go into the state house? What parking garage do you park in? Where do you park? And then, you know, what floor, what floor to take the elevator up to? And all those things that like that little, they seem like little barriers, but they're really not. You gotta, it's almost kind of like that, that, that kid, that, that fifth grade kid who's just changed schools midway through the school year. And now you're walking into the classroom or the school for the first time on your own. Like I, I feel like I remember the first time I went down there, I kind of felt that way. It was like, I don't know where to go. I don't know who, who to talk to you about this. Like, and you feel a lot of sorts. And so like, did that, was that your experience or kind of what? Absolutely. Um, because it was a new experience, I think that's unnerving period. So I used my ways app and found myself the parking garage most conveniently located across from the state house, which happened to be the one at Claypool Courts. Um, drove straight there, probably took me 30 minutes from Westfield, which was great. Um, and then when I parked, I thought, oh my goodness, I don't know where I'm going. So I got really lucky when at, when I got to the bottom of the elevator in the parking garage and happened to run into someone I know, um, which perhaps was just divine intervention that day. So he walked me across the street into the front doors of the state house through the metal detector and up to the third floor and explained that the two chambers sit on opposite sides of the state house. He showed me the house side, uh, which I believe would be the east side. And then the Senate side was on the west, which was great. Um, and just what, what floor? Uh, third floor. Third floor. Third okay. floor. And uh, the one thing that I knew from years of uh, testimony before our city council, and this sounds a little ridiculous, but it's a great way to pace yourself if you draft what you're going to say in Microsoft Word on Calibri at 11-point font, it works out to be about three minutes, depending on the pace of what how you speak. So, uh, It's I amazing. Have- First of all, I didn't know you pronounced it that way. I always call it Calibri. Uh, and <laughs> until just now, I had no clue. So a Hoosier, isn't it? There, there is the potential that I'm wrong on this, but I have it's always amazing. pronounced oh, you're pro- it Calibri. That's funny. Yeah. So yeah, Calibri eleven points. You're probably don't, right. I have. I'm the one that's probably wrong. And so. don't go over one page, or you will exceed three minutes. I mean, two sentences over, and you're at three minutes and. 15 or if seconds. you're like me, as you're walking up there, say, "All right, Lord, just tell me what to say," and then start talking. Well, there you go. But you know, there's nothing worse than getting that buzzer, 
right. uh, which local government has the same daggone three minute buzzer that the state <laughs> legislature has. You wish like it would be like a, it would be something like a, a nice relaxing buzzer or, or like maybe something like this. Yeah. <laughs> right. How about like that? What if they had something like that? <laughs> that, that would be, be a little bit more un, un, like unnerving or like, or that would be a little bit more nerving. That would be just as calm and, That'd but, but they have pleasant. the, they have the, uh, I don't know what I have here, but they've got like the, or the, yeah, it yeah. might as well be a gong. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a gong or, uh, I believe the other night at the, Westfield City Council meeting. Someone actually mentioned the old shepherd's hook. Uh-huh. To, to yeah, there you go. Stage. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I'll say Westfield's a little bit more forgiving now. Um, I think some councils might be, um, but there, there is. Like they'll let you, they'll let you kind of finish if yeah. it's not like, you know, right. exorbitantly. And then, long. you know, you get the person who says, I promise, I promise just two more sentences. <laughs> Um, and it goes on for another five minutes. So, uh, yeah, it seemed that the committee chair people were a little aggravated by that in my experience. Uh, luckily, that did not happen to me. I was able to say really two sentences. Because you had Calibri at 11.5. I'm going to pound that one into your head. Well, something people need to remember, too, and this sounds like a, just a little thing, but she said the third floor. But when you walk into the state house, you're actually walking into the second floor because the first floor is the basement. Gotcha. So you want yes. third Good. floor. But you may only see three floors because the fourth floor is, looks like the third from gotcha. the first floor when you walk in. and the, it's, So it's first floor is the basement, second floor is the main floor, third floor is where the chambers are, and then committee hearings and staff are on fourth floor, and the court is on the fourth floor. But So the court, that's like the gallery where you can mm-hmm. go and look in and yeah. and see, look down yeah. and watch. And yeah, stuff. When they, yeah, and when they built the Capitol in the 1800s, the first floor was actually where they keep the livestock or the uh, horses and things. and What is now, it what is now? Now the media is down there, ah! which is very appropriate, I think. <laughs> yeah, love it. I love it. Uh, okay, so that's good. So, so Micah, then what is your... Okay, so, so, so you go down to testify, mm-hmm. and then in your experience, like, kind of take us through that first part of a bill being drafted, written, and then, um, and then we'll, you know, just kind of tell us the process from from the ground floor, if you will, and where a bill goes. Well, a legislator has an idea. It's not written by people, uh, citizens, but a legislator will come up with an idea from a citizen oftentimes or something he wants to do. He will give that idea to legislative services agency and their attorneys will draft it into bill format. He will file the bill, he or she, and the leadership will assign that bill to a committee based on the subject of that bill. So if you have a, a, a subject of a bill concerning roads and transportation, they'll send it to that committee. If you have a a bill that concerns teachers, they'll send it to an education committee. So you're, you have different committees on different subjects. And then there's a three-step process a bill comes through before becoming a law goes through. The first reading or the first is the committee hearing. And so in the committee hearing, you have a smaller group of legislators of about a dozen, I think it's 11 to 13, odd number. Um, and then they will take a hearing on the bill. They'll take testimony on it. They'll amend it and vote on it. And then it goes to the second step. And uh, the full House or the full Senate, either 50 House me- fifty senators or 100 House members, will then consider that bill. The bill will be presented by the bill's author on the House floor. He'll tell them what the committee decided, what the committee did. And then any legislator can offer an amendment to change that bill. Whether they were in the committee hearing or not, they can offer an amendment. Amendments are considered, they're debated, they're talked about, they're voted on up or down. That's the second reading. The third reading is the final vote where that bill has to pass by a simple majority, either 26 votes in the Senate or 51 votes in the House. And then it will go through that stage and it will go to the next chamber. Now, a bill has to pass all three of those stages 
or it dies. And then once it's past the original House of Origin, so House Bill 101 or Senate Bill 11 or 1, whatever you want to call it, if those bills pass, they will then switch chambers and go through those same three steps again, the committee process, amendment process, final vote, and then it goes to the governor. Now, there is a tricky situation. Under our Constitution, it makes sense this way. Both House and Senate have to vote on the identical bill. So... If the Senate makes a change on the House bill, the House has to vote on that again to approve what the Senate did. They call that a conference committee. So the House author and Senate authors get together. They'll create a conference committee report, and then the House and Senate will vote on any changes so that each chamber is voted on what exactly goes to the governor's office. Now, if a bill, say House Bill 1, goes through and it's about putting a bridge in Hamilton County, and it's voted on, passes, say, 100 to 0, it goes to the Senate, they don't change it, and it passes. It goes straight to the governor. But if one comma or anything is changed, they have to vote on that change in the original House. Wow. So it's a good process. It's a safety measure so that things aren't slid through without both people's elected representatives knowing. And then it goes to the governor. And the governor has a choice of either signing the bill into law, vetoing it, or laying it going to law without a signature after seven business days. And why, why would he do that? Well, if it's a bill he doesn't want to stop, but he doesn't really want to be a, his name on it. So from a political, political perspective. perspective. It doesn't yeah. happen very often. Or if he's dragging his feet. Uh, if the, he's just lazy and right, doesn't want to get to it. The bill just come, become so law. So that's seven yeah. days seven after, business days, after yeah. it goes to his desk. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a question. Does a bill, the moment it passes both chambers identically, does it instantly go to his desk for signature then? Or do they well, wait kind of towards... Because I guess it would be at the end of session anyway, but right. like, is there kind of a, is there kind of a time like, like, well, let's just say like House Bill One goes over to the Senate next next week. They they instantly vote on it. They it's a up mm-hmm. up vote, easy to pass through. Would they wait? They can't wait until the end of March to get it to the. No, they usually desk. don't. But there is some technical things that they have to do. The legis- the attorneys look at the bill again the Senate president and House Speaker of the House sign off on the bill. Then it goes to the governor. So there's a couple internal steps they take. Okay. It, it's not legislating. It's it's a clarification. Technicality. Technicality stuff. And then it goes. And that can hold up a bill for several days. Um, now, when the governor signs it, uh, does that instantly become no, a law? Not unless the bill says so. Okay. Every bill has an enactment clause at the end. And most bills passed... Um, Say in January, we'll have an enactment date of, I think it's June 1st or July 1st. Um, but there's a. I think it's July. I think it's July. Because I remember the there was a bill that I didn't necessarily like. It was a. And, and people are probably going to like crucify me for this, but it was a hands free bill, like driving. Mm-hmm. You couldn't hold your hand. You couldn't hold your cell phone a couple of years ago. Right. And, and they, they said, not if you get, if you're caught holding your cell phone, it's going to be, uh, you know, you you could be ticketed. And I, I saw that as government intrusion, like, into my car. It's like, dude, like, get out of my car. I don't want the government here. Not to say that you should hold your cell phone while driving. I think it's unwise to do that. But, I, so I didn't like that bill. So I remember counting down the months. I was like, okay, uh, so this was March. Okay, I got until July 1st until I can, you know. <laughs> and so then I knew July 1st it was yeah. literally, oh, that was the time. So at least that on that yep. particular yep. bill, yeah. Most of the bills are that way. They have an enactment clause in the summer, July 1st. But sometimes they can put a statement at the end of the bill, say an emergency exists for this order, and it goes into effect upon signing when the governor signs it. For example, a few years ago when we had the Super Bowl here, they passed a bill regarding um, – 
sex trafficking because there was a concern about prostitution at Super Bowls that happens at every city. Oh, yeah. So yeah. there's some things we need to do as a matter of law to protect women and, and that and, and that crime. And as soon as the governor signed it, it went into effect because the Super Bowl was in, what, early February. Oh, yeah. So they rushed it through in January. They signed it, went into law immediately. Interesting. Okay. So That's called an emergency clause. Mike, I have a question about conference committees. Mm-hmm. So when, for instance, we have advocacy and opposition groups about certain bills that are you know current and if it if it since one of the bills that i'm thinking of made it out of the house Mm -hmm. and it now has to go to the senate can it still be amended is it recommended that this should be amended or like the opposition groups have uh, certain things they want changed can we do that now or Yes, because it has to go through the same process all over again in the Senate. If it doesn't go through that, it doesn't become law. So the Senate will have a committee hearing just like the House did where they can amend it and it can be amended on the floor. So if you've got a House bill that you've been watching, maybe you testified on it and you want to change it or you don't like it. Um, there's a bill on critical race theory I don't really like right now. needs changes in the Senate. My state senator, even though it's a House bill, can do that in the next few weeks when it comes before him. So they can make that change. Um, and, and, and I use the term conference committee because that's what it's called. After that, Senator amends that. Let's say he amends House Bill 1134 on critical race theory in schools, and he improves it, which is why I would like to see made it stronger. The House then has to vote on those changes, and the conference committee is not the same as the education committee where we testify, you and I may testify. It's a committee, but it's only a committee of the House authors. So you have the House author and the Senate sponsor, and then two members of the opposite party. So it would be, if it's a Republican bill, you'd have the Republican from the House who authored the bill, the Republican in the Senate who sponsored it, then two Democrats will be named to it. They all four have to sign off on the final language. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen, and they'll replace a member who will sign off and move it through the process. So If they don't get the signatures, though, the bill will die. Okay, so that's interesting because because it has to be – so that's an even – that that could be two. You mm-hmm. could have two two, right? You'd have right. obviously in our right. in our case, you'd have two Republicans because it'd be the author and the sponsor, mm-hmm. and then you'd have two Democrats. So if it's like if eleven thirty four, this right. education bill goes to conference, the Democrats could really dig their feet right. in and say we're not going to sign this, right. and all the leadership could do at that point would be to replace those two Democrats with two more Democrats. Well, right. they, that's where it gets a little hairy. They can replace it with two Republicans. Oh, they can. They don't do it very often, but they originally have to sign. It has to be bipartisan going in. But as the hearing, you know, as the legislature winds down, and this happens at the very last few days, the speaker or the Senate president can pull off two people who won't sign if they really want that bill to sign it, to get out of committee, get unstuck, and then the legislature has to vote. And most of the time the legislature will approve, but sometimes I've seen bills make it all the way through the end of the process, and the House or Senate are going to say, I don't like what the Senate did, and they vote it down, and it dies. Okay, interesting. Do Democrats, if they go in to, to as conferees, do they typically say, well, it's it really isn't our job to stand in the way? I mean, that doesn't sound well, like a typical Democrat. What, uh, usually, like- what usually happens <laughs> is the, you know, the, the Indiana General Assembly is controlled by Republicans. And so if you're um, you know, Representative Micah Beckwith and you've got a bill you really like, you will go to leadership and say, hey, Representative Sam Jones is a Democrat, but he's a friend of mine. He likes this bill. He likes some things. Can you put him on the conference committee? That's kind of how that works behind the scenes. They might try to find a friendly Democrat. Right, right. 
And, but, the, and the Democrats do the same thing. They yeah. find friendly Republicans. Because the, the guy wants, you know, guy's gone this far to get the bill through the process. Sure. He wants it to make it to the governor's office. So yeah. um, Now, I would say on a bill, let's just go back to 1134, this mm-hmm. hotly contested uh, Education Matters bill, the Democrats seem pretty like uh, beholden to the teachers' right. union. So they're going to, I don't think you could find a friendly right. Democrat in the whole right. state house for that. They'll, they will assign two Democrats and then they'll probably at the end of the day have to pull them off and put two Republicans on all four Republicans will sign it. Then they'll vote. Yeah. But you know, I, I, that's, you have to have a crystal ball to see what happens. Yeah. But it, it's not uncommon for that to happen. It's not the standard rule, but it does happen fairly okay. often. It's interesting. Marla, what, um, what do you see people in the grassroots activist world getting wrong when it comes to testifying on a bill? Uh, and that would happen in, uh, is it, that's typically first reading, right? Uh-huh. When that, when that yes. happens. So they testify, they go down and testify in first reading. Like what are some of the mistakes that you've witnessed this year? Um, and what would you advise people? Cause you are, you're very, even though this is kind of the first year you've been down testifying yourself, you go prepare, you study, and you don't just walk in blind, right? Um, and and so that that's very I admire that a lot. But you've seen a lot of great testimony. You've seen a lot of not so great testimony. What are you kind of? What would you tell the grassroots activist crowd? Like, hey, if you want to be successful, um, you know, this is don't do this or do this. Yeah, definitely. I would say uh, the first thing is read the bill or have the best understanding possible that you can of it. Um, I did watch a gentleman who I Where? just adore um, testify about something that really wasn't germane to a mm-hmm. bill at all. Okay, wait a second. Stop right there. So the word germane, germane what does that mean? Uh, relevant. <laughs> okay, thank you. Because <laughs> just so people, because listen, I've heard, I've said that before. People are like, what is germane? What? What is that? Okay. It, yeah, it okay. just relevant. wasn't relevant. Because they we say that all the about. time. They'll use big words that we don't ever. How many times when you're at like, you know, Panera and you're like, um, ah, that's not really germane to my order there. You know, I'm, we don't use that very often in society. So I want to make Isn't sure. Isn't he people, one of Jackson 5? I think. <laughs> that's right. Germane. He was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, okay. So it's not germane to, to the bill because he didn't necessarily know. Maybe we didn't know what was in the bill. Um, but then you also said, um, uh, you know, going back. Oh, I was going to stop. I, I lost my train of thought. Now I was going to ask you to clarify something, um, but now now I'm now I lost my train of thought. Okay, continue. Okay. I, we got well, caught up on Jermaine. All right. Okay. So <laughs> sorry. I'll try to keep the words uh, simple. Here. <laughs> so you're um, smarter than me. Okay. No, I think what she was saying though is if the person gets off track, yes. And a lot of times the chairman will will try and redirect them because time's short. And, and and you can't just go down there and pontificate on whatever you want. Yeah. You have to be relevant to what the bill addresses. Yeah. Yep. Right. And well, unfortunately, I mean, it, it sort of um, shot this gentleman in the foot because then it opened him up, his insistence that what he was talking about was relevant to the bill. And then it opened it up that uh, a couple of the Democrats on the committee then said, see, this is what we were worried about, is that people would misunderstand it, and those are our concerns. And so then they want to ask him questions, mm-hmm. and I don't think he was prepared to answer those questions. So they, they saw a, an easy victim, and they took, they took advantage of his lack of knowledge. And, and this, was in, this was on Senate this, Bill 17? This was on Senate Bill 17. Which was a porn, a porn and school bill, or, or obscene material, yeah. removing that from the schools right. and the Democrats are basically saying, no, there's not anything in there. There's nothing that we need to be worried about there, you know, and that's kind of their talking point. Right. So the, the, 
the um, gentleman who was testifying had made it about subject matter as opposed to what the the change in law specifically addressed, which was sexually explicit material and obscenities. Um, and so now we're on a topic of, well, um, I just don't like the subject matter, which was probably more relevant in House Bill 1134, mm-hmm. but at Senate Bill 17, this book did not have sexually explicit material that, that he was, um, you know, so stuck on that he didn't want taught. So um, uh, anyway, I think he opened himself up to uh, getting some questions and feedback that was not anticipated by him. Um, so some of the other testimony, which um, I think this is a slippery slope, is there are, you know, people just angry uh, who who want to come down and testify and let people know that they they find these bills so important to them, but yet um, they also don't think our Republican supermajority is doing enough to pass bills on behalf of conservatives. And so then they begin insulting the very Republicans they're asking to pass a bill, which I think is very, very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So, um, Mike, I'd kind of like to hear maybe your your best advice to someone who's new to to testifying generally, like how, how, what's the best way to handle that? Well, I would say this, and this is my problem as a conservative. I tend to stick to, I want to see what the data says, research, you know, this is what polling shows or this is what the, but what I've seen over the years, and it's, it's a whole other discussion about postmodernism and truth being relevant and feelings, feelings subjecting truth. If you have testimony that is a story of how this affected you in a negative or in a positive way, a heartfelt story, don't make things up, but emotion carries the day on a lot of these issues. I hate to say that. You'd like to say facts, but one of the most effective testimonies I've seen on Senate Bill 17, I thought, was some young students who who testified about what they were taught in class, how it made them feel, how how critical race theory was divisive to them or or even worse on Senate Bill 17 some of the pornographic stuff that they were exposed to I think that moves in the heart of legislators because they hear a lot from professional lobbyists and people who are down there and they kind of know a lot of the players but when they have somebody who took the time off of work or a child who took off school to travel down there and spend a lot of time to tell a story that is a real true life story that has a lot of weight I, I agree I I, uh, my testimony centered around just one book that I found at my son's school library. <laughs> now, the problem was, of course, that it was so objectionable. You couldn't read it. Yeah. Couldn't read from the book. You know, that's interesting you say that because last year there were parents coming down to the state house because like, Senate Bill 17 mm-hmm. was up last year, mm-hmm. too, and uh, it, didn't, it didn't pass. And I remember some of the testimony got the legislative assistants came to the parents and said, you can't read this. This is going to be, this is too inappropriate to be read down here at the state house. And the parents were like, yeah, no joke. Like it's, but this is what's in my fifth grade right. classroom. Well, and what's interesting too, and uh, perhaps just a skosh off topic uh, as far as processes of what ha- is happening at the state legislature, but um, a couple of the Democrats were asking about the current process. And what I find interesting is apparently they're blissfully unaware of the current process. Um, it, it seems that uh, my son's school district and then the local school district where I live they pretty much have the same policy on the process there. And that policy is an epic failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, I had, when I did my book filing and said, I've identified these books, 
Um, it went to a committee. The committee was made up by the principal, by uh, the media specialist who, and now the one at my son's school happens to be new, but she would have been the very person who allowed the books there in the first place. So I don't think she or he would be inclined to say they don't belong there. Then they added another teacher in the school system plus one parent. And I questioned how that parent was chosen. And she was at the top of the list alphabetically of people who volunteered. (laughs) So I have no um, course for redress at that point. They just are going to look at the books. But they wanted me to do all the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to read all the books. Um, And I said, I'm not doing that. I don't have time to read you know, seven kids' books that I know are dirty books because they've been identified by people across the country. So, you know, bringing that back to the General Assembly and, and you know, addressing these committee members, wh- why should parents be the people that have to do all the work when we had uh, different unions testifying that day on, on Senate Bill 17 who won't admit that these obscenities are in there. They're simply saying we're doing our due diligence, but I really hardly think that these librarians are reading the tens of thousands of books they put in their library. They take suggestions from others. So maybe it's the others we need to be worried about, but um, there, you know, there's part of the process that's broken when you keep saying, well, just because we have one doesn't mean it works. That's right. I would say this too. In most cases, I'm not trying to be cynical, but in most cases, legislators have already made up their mind on the committee how they're going to vote on a bill, or leadership has talked to them about how they want to vote. The Republicans have locked up, Democrats have locked up. It's party line vote if it's a controversial issue. It's not that way with every bill, but we need people there to show up and testify because if nobody shows up to testify, it looks really bad and that can really hurt a bill. But something that's more important maybe not more important, but just as powerful is having people call their legislator about that bill. It's twofold. It's not just showing up to testify and you can only have so many people testify five, six, 10, 20 at the most. But on the other hand, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 phone calls is very influential to legislators. So we have to do two things and phone calls are a whole lot easier than testifying. You don't have to take six hours out of your day and you're not nervous. You just call, leave a message on their fo- on their phone, or talk to the legislative assistant and say, "I support House Bill 1134. Please, Representative So and So, please support this." For example, and and we have to be involved in every step along the way. And phone calls are extremely important. A lot of people say, "Well, what about emails? What about petitions?" Do all of them, but phone calls are most important. If you have time, a handwritten letter is very effective because they don't get very many of them anymore. But a lot of times things happen so fast that you don't have time. But if you can call and email and sign a petition, any way you can get your voice in front of them, do it. But but phone calls are something very important. So is a is a phone call as effective of a voluminous email where you're telling your personal story? Or I mean, do they do you think they have the same effect? I I don't know with a lot of legislators how many of them read their email. Now they all have iPads, a lot of them see their email. But a lot of them have delegated that to their legislative assistant or their intern, and they will respond to some of it, but they're overwhelmed like with email like we are. I would never tell anybody not to do anything. Emails are easy. I do them. But phone calls are something very important. To what, I've, what I've heard from LAs down there is that they will basically just be taking a tab right. on, I, su- 
like pro or against right. a certain bill, and then they go to their to the the legislator and say you've got fourteen pro and seven against for this particular bill. So don't if you're going to email, from my perspective, don't waste time putting in this long like mm-hmm. it's it's not going to it's not going to get to the legislator. It's going to the LA is going to see it, and all they're looking for is just do you support it or are you against it? And that's and I think that's primarily where that email is going. So the other thing yeah. is I would avoid and it's it's you know it's tempting to say, well I'm gonna to talk to them about this bill, this bill, and this bill, and this bill. I would limit it to two or three. Uh, because send another email the next day on another issue. But on Monday do House Bill eleven thirty four. Yeah. On Tuesday Senate Bill seventeen. You know, so they're not getting, oh here's here's Sally Smith and she's always flooding me because they won't see it with ten issues she's concerned about. It'd be better for her to send Two issues, two days over five. So, days. in in case of like uh, you know eleven thirty four or the SB, let's just take SB uh, SB seventeen. If you're going to write your senator, just in the subject line, say I support SB seventeen, yeah. yep. and then the actual content, just say I support yep. SB seventeen, and you know yeah. please support it. Right. So, yeah. Micah, do you have any? Um, I don't know that you would, but statistics on. Uh, I had I had received an email. I'll give you an example um, that said uh, the. Um. Oh gosh, I just I just blanked. Um, Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. The Speaker of the House has only received six thousand emails on this particular bill, as if that's not enough. That's a what? lot. Okay, that was my impression. What and bill was that specifically? Was that uh, education? It was, no, it was one of the healthcare mandate bills. Oh, right. that was te- that was ten oh one. Okay, which so by the way, did that one pass? It did. Out of the house? It's been changed quite a bit. It does expand the um, exemptions for religious exemptions for vaccines. Okay. Um, it, I don't think it tells businesses that they cannot mandate, but I'm not sure of that. That was the big contention because the chamber wants, yeah. doesn't want the government telling. They want to be able to tell. Have you know, it's funny. I was talking to a big business owner and uh, legislator. that uh, He's also a legislator down at the state house. And, and, uh, Boy, he he wanted to be able to tell his employees to get the vaccine, mm-hmm. but he got ticked when Biden uh, under OSHA was telling him what to do, <laughs> right. and I was like, um, uh, "Do you see kind right. of the irony here?" And it's like, "So like, yeah, it sucks when someone tells you what to do, doesn't <laughs> right. it?" Yeah, yeah. So, so it um, a bill that maybe is not perceived as uh, um, one that would be the the best. I mean, I, I assume people, when they don't think they're good, they don't send emails, right? But so what, I, I guess what's a relative number? What's If you, you know it's a hot topic, if it gets well, X number. It depends on how much the, me, the media is paying attention to it. If it's something that, that's not in the media and they get 10 phone calls on it, that, that tells them, that gets them nervous because they're like, wait a minute, this is not in the local newspaper, this is not on national media, but back home, somebody's concerned about this enough to, and a lot of these guys who live outside of Indianapolis, they feel a little disconnected. You know, if you live up in Auburn, you're, you're two and a half hours away. You're staying downtown during session. You're not necessarily driving home, seeing your family there. The last thing they want is some firestorm to erupt back home on an issue that they're not aware of that suddenly pops up on their radar. So, um, I can't say there's a hard and fast rule. I will sure. say that more than 10 phone calls in one day on one bill is a big deal okay. because most people don't have the time to do it. You know, but if it's a if it's an issue that everyone if they know all that both sides have rallied on and the media is talking about, ten calls may not mean that much. But if it's like, 
a bill that's not getting a lot of attention, they get five or 10 calls. That can be very yeah. influential. The bills that we've been kind of hitting on this year, uh, 1134, Senate Bill 167, House Bill 1001, mm -hmm. those have been really contentious. Right. They've been in the media a lot. You've got the unions, you got the Liberal Chamber of Commerce and the Liberal Teachers Union kind of really rallying up their, their base. And, and to your point, Marla, they actually have lobbyists that can they can send down to mm -hmm. lobby for that particular that what they want to have happen the the good just average joes who are pro-american you know uh love just just want the government to back off they're typically working you know what i mean like they, they can't like come out during the day right, right. and so you know you, you're we're a little bit the good guys are really kind of their hands are sort of tied behind their back a little bit already um and so kind of knowing the strategy and again we've got mike micah clark from the american family association and here and then marla ayler uh who's a, a activist in westfield and and just we're we're, we're discussing this, how, how to know the strategy to be effective because, because man, I've been doing this now for a couple of years and rallying the troops and, and it's uh, I love the passion. The passion mm -hmm. is awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got, our side has so much passion, but a lot of times we lack effectiveness and how to, how to kind of take that passion and, and get it into a place that can, it can be effective. So right. I think well, just like with everything else, this, this comes down to relationships too. Yeah. When you call your legislator in January, February, March, when they're in session, that's one thing. But when they see you at a county fair or they talk, you talk to them about that same issue in the summertime and they get to know you one-on-one -on -one and, and they know that you're not there necessarily to bite their head off. You just want them to hear you and you build a relationship. And when they vote right, you thank them. I think that's a oh, big that's part big. of it. Yeah. They don't get a lot of thanks. They get a lot of criticism. Yeah. But it's all about relationships. The position you want to get yourself into is when you call your legislator and they say, oh, it's Micah, I know him, I'll call him back. Um, that's the position you want to be in because then you're a gatekeeper. And also, Micah, you're a pastor. Pastors are gatekeepers. When, if, if you're listening and you're a pastor, and let's say you're Pastor Joe Smith, when you call the statehouse, they'll say, well, it's Joe Smith, please vote on Senate Bill 1. No, say it's Joe Smith, pastor of First Baptist Church in Huntington, yeah, you know, because then that guy says, "Oh my gosh, that's that church has got five hundred people in it." Yeah, that's a gatekeeper. Yeah, a doctor is a gatekeeper. He's got hundred. He's got hundreds of patients. You know, if you're a gatekeeper and you have a title, give them your title and yeah. say, "Look, you know, I've got lots of people in my business. I'm a small business owner. I'm a pastor. Yeah. I'm this or that." You know, if if God puts you in that position, use that title because that has influence Good. more than just. Regular old that's, Joe Smith. That's great. Right. Well, I was going to say kind of to that point, um, on a local issue recently, uh, someone sent out an email that said, you should you should email your city councilors. Um, but a key to that is making sure you have people to testify so that it is mm -hmm. on the record, um, which I, I kind of took that upon myself this week to go up to our city council to say, hey, I want this on the record that these people are advocating for this. And sure enough, much to your point, Micah, it had 10 people had sent an email. Mm -hmm. So there I was putting it out, you know, on the public record. And uh, the mayor gratefully suggested that someone stand up and, and give me an answer right then and there because the, the answer needed to be out there for mm -hmm. the public. And what I've seen uh, with the what's happening with bills in the legislature over the last two weeks has been a really coordinated and wonderful effort on the part of conservatives to say, we need to know how many people we have testifying mm -hmm. in favor of this. Mm -hmm. Can you go? And I mean, no one should be expected to be there every day for every bill, even if they support all of them. So um, 
you know, I saw uh, Paige Miller, for instance, mm-hmm. she had gone down and testified, but she was there for eight hours that right. day. So I had said, you know, well, I'll go next week on a different bill. Now I was there for maybe four hours. So one question for you is, how does a committee decide how many hours of testimony they're going to give to a bill? And what's the significance of that decision? That is entirely up to the chairman. And the committee hearing that you've sat through a lot, because you and I have seen each other down there a lot this year, the education committees, in those cases, both those chairmen will let the, will let the committee go as long as they want for as many people who've signed up. One of my favorite chairmen uh, was a lady named Pat Miller. She chaired the health committee, had a lot of abortion bills and other issues. She's not, she's retired, but she would quite often say, okay, we've got this bill. We've got four bills on our schedule. You know, they may deal with hospitals, but we've got one on abortion. And she'd say, I'm going to give each side on the house and Senate bill seven on abortion, a half hour each. And that's fine. That's fair. That's, if I were to run a committee, that might be how I would do it. I think being down there for six hours, and I sat in the chair for six hours waiting to testify a couple weeks ago and never did get to testify because I had a dentist appointment, and Michael was sitting next to me. <laughs> we, 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 we were like, we're done with this. Um, but Peace! It's, we're out! It's entirely up to the chairman. The chairman runs the committee, and he or she can say, I'm going to allot this amount of time, or I'm going to take everybody who's signed up. Uh, they can do whatever they want. And I actually kind of like when they limit time. Now, sometimes when you've got, it's frustrating when you've got somebody really good you want to testify and they don't get to. Yeah. Um, that's where coordination comes in. And and also the other thing is the bill's author has a lot of say in that too. Mm. Uh, I've been in committees a lot of times where the bill's author will say to the chairman, I want this person to go first, this person to go second, this person to go third. Because in, in the case of it, we had a pornography bill or adult business bill, we flew in a guy from, from uh, Tennessee, one of the best attorneys in the nation on this issue, he had a plane to catch that afternoon, so he, he, he spoke to the chairman. He spoke first. They called him. Um, before they called anybody else, the, the author presented the bill and said, I have Scott Berghold here to testify, and they went right to him. And they gave him extra time, too, because he'd flown in, yeah. gave him more than three minutes. But And the three-minute rule is entirely up to the chairman, too. They can make it two, which is horribly frustrating. Or they can let you go as long as you want and then just gavel you when they think you're done. Yeah, so there was a suggestion from a friend that this Republican legislature, whichever house uh, it is or whichever chamber, is that there is a reason, a very calculated reason, that they would allow eight hours of testimony. Right. Not because the bill is wildly popular, but because it allows the opposition time to make sure the bill dies. Right. Um, Is there... I guess, is there any way around that more than appealing to the committee that's, chairperson? That's a smoke-filled room question because uh-huh. that is the behind-the-scenes discussions and that's you're trying to get inside the mind of the, of the leadership or the chairman. And if they have a bill they're giving here and they're not real fond of or they see a lot of opposition to, you know, they can, they can let it dangle out there and get beat up. They can also choose what order it gets beat up. If it's a favorable testimony first or opposition testimony first, they can pick who speaks when. And a lot of times they'll let a bill go out there and get beaten to death and they can just see the committee lose support for it. And and then they can postpone the, they can also, if they have a bill they want to pass or they support and they see it's getting beat up, they can end testimony and hold the vote till next week and then work it behind the scenes. There's a lot of tricks that go on that are really out of our hands. Um, But the best thing we can do is just average people is build a relationship with their own state Senator or state representative and make man get calls Get calls from your Sunday school class. Get calls from your 
small group, you know, every group you have that, that get people to call your legislator on these bills. Uh, that's good. It's, it's fascinating. Um, you know, you brought up that sort of that, uh, closed door, uh, sessions that these, uh, these legislators go and they, they do what they call, uh, they have caucus mm-hmm. meetings and, and, um, and those are, those are private meetings between the, uh, the, the Republicans and, and the Democrats do their own and then they come out unified. And a lot of times people don't like the fact that they're in there, they're building strategy. They're mm-hmm. at, they actually, a lot of times too, they'll come out with already kind of knowing what they're going to do. Right. They right. already, you know, I, I heard one legislator tell me once that he said, you know, by the time it comes out to, to committee, even for public testimony, most of the party leadership and the, and the representatives or senators already know what they're doing. Right. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of the unfortunate part of the process. And, um, you know, there was, I know, uh, the constitutional carry got killed last year, uh, and it got killed in, in caucus. Uh, they were basically, and they wouldn't say who was behind the killing of it because no Republican wanted to have their name Mm -hmm. on killing constitutional carry. And that really ticked off a lot of Republicans, especially like myself who are very much in favor of constitutional carry. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and they brought it up again. They got it, you know, now it's, it's back on, it's back in hearing. We'll see if, uh, Senator Liz Brown, do you know where that bill stands? That's kind of a little bit outside the ha- your the house has passed the bill and there's a Senate version that she held a hearing on this week, okay. but okay. didn't, didn't do any action. She on. hasn't voted. No. And Liz, she that's Senator kind of, Liz Brown mm-hmm, from Fort, Fort Wayne. Wayne yeah. 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 And she's taking some heat cause she, she kind of helped kill the bill last year mm-hmm. in, in, um, as well. Yeah, so. I think what's going on there is you have, um, second amendment advocates like myself and you and others, and then you have, I think, some a few police groups yeah. that are concerned, and it's it's kind of a it's a problem of our own making because Indiana has such a good permit system. Yeah. It's a really good permit system. We're shall issue state, so you need a permit, or you, if you need a permit, you can get one if you have a clean criminal record. And if you go into Michigan, you want a permit too, so you're going to still want that system for reciprocity. But constitutional carry has benefits too; they're helpful as well. And uh, but but I think people are using our permit system to. Say well, we don't really need constitutional carry, and we have such a good system that they're shooting at the, no pun intended, at the constitutional <laughs> carry with some of those arguments. Yeah, it was uh, Doug Carter, who's the uh, he's the superintendent mm-hmm. of the state police, and mm-hmm. used to be the Hamilton County right. Sheriff. Uh, he's one of Holcomb's right hand men, mm-hmm. and he's a cabinet member, and um, and he's really been a big uh, opponent of right. constitutional carry. Uh, which you know he causes me to shake my head, and he you know he he gets out out there and says it's going to put officers in danger, which is um, there's no data to support that, and and actually then Hamilton County Sheriff Dennis right. Quakenbush has come down and supported mm-hmm. constitutional carry. So it's interesting you have two well, former Hamilton County mm-hmm. Sheriff who works for Holcomb now, and a, and a, the current Hamilton County Sheriff, and they're on opposite sides of this issue, and so it, it's a fascinating process, and you know you you, uh, you it's frustrating at times, it's also encouraging at times it's it is uh it's it's amazing and and really hopefully what this conversation and this podcast does for you the listener is it just gives you a little bit of uh maybe a uh, a motivation to get involved and you kind of know now sort of how this whole thing starts um with the idea for a bill the legislators draft the bill typically the legislators themselves don't write any of the bill that goes there's a that's the um, legislative uh, services. Yeah, I mean they put it in legal format, but yeah. the legislator has a lot of say. He'll on have it, the idea, or have the idea and yeah. how, what he wants it to do, and then they'll yeah. put it in the bill format. Yeah. And, so and, uh, and legislative services and those, is by is is bipartisan, right? It, it, right. It's yeah. yeah it's it's totally, the staff attorneys, yeah. but um, and you you know something we should have said right from the beginning is if you Google Indiana General Assembly or in.gov slash legislative, 
That's the Indiana General Assembly webpage. You can track a bill. You can look up the law. You can look up code. You can look up the committees, yep. when the committees are meeting, when the hearings are taking place. Another, another great app that I have is uh, called uh, Fast Democracy. Okay. So if you download that app, um, you can put in your state, and then it will tell it what bills you want to follow. So I'm following House Bill 1134 right now. And to give you an example, it says Amendment Number 7, Delaney, failed, roll call, 94 yays, 28 nays. Uh, and so so it, t- it kind of tells me where it's at, the last action, and it tells me what bills are. So that's called Fast Democracy. So that's a really easy way um, to be able to follow uh, certain bills and um and, and so yeah. the iga website is yeah not the most user-friendly but uh, i mean once you start using it you can right. navigate it from a government's um, perspective it's a, it's it's not bad it was built by the government <laughs> it's, it's part of the bureaucracy right. uh, no. i i at least it works unlike yeah. obamacare website for so the I have first a question that maybe years. gets us through the through the process to the end because there were some big questions this morning on social media about well who voted what way I want to know who voted for this and who voted against. Now, my understanding, and I'm sure it's wrong, so please correct me, um, is if there is just a simple vote taken, it's yays and nays generally, but there's some kind of difference or perhaps not between a roll call vote. The only difference is there's occasionally you'll have a voice vote and in committee hearing you'll say, we're going to, here's the amendment and usually it's a it's an it's amendment that doesn't mean a whole lot, or there's general agreement. And they'll say, "We'll take this by consent." That's a voice vote. And they'll say okay. consent, and they'll take it. If there's an amendment that's maybe somewhat more controversial, or even one legislator objects, they'll do a roll call vote. Same thing happens on the floor. Sometimes they'll do voice votes, but if one legislator says, "I want to call for division of the house," or a roll call vote, then they have to take a recorded vote because a division of the house means. You'll have your yays and nays, and the, they don't really know who, who there's more of, so they want to count. So most most third reading votes, even on a bill that passes unanimously, has a roll call vote, and they're posted on the website. All you do is look up the bill number. On the right-hand side, you'll have bill details, and there's also House votes and Senate votes. You can click on either one of those, and it'll pull up the vote, and it'll show you, and you can print out the vote and see where they voted. So it seems last night that there, there maybe there's some... Uh, interesting voting nuances that people might want to know about where uh, I guess a number of them, seven or nine or something got up and left, not because they didn't support it or oppose it, but they just simply didn't want their vote Recorded. on the yeah. record. Yeah, that happens. Um, does that happen often or? It's, it happens several times. And that's, a session. And that's yeah. purely political. Yeah. I mean, right? you have to have a certain number of members on the floor and the members of the committee. Because you have to have a quorum before you can take a vote. Sure. But, you know, I think if you have, uh, if you have a majority, you can have 10, 20 legislators leave. That's one of the things about the supermajority is the Democrats can all leave and there's still two thirds of the Republicans yeah. there. They can do business. So uh, the walkout doesn't work very well, but it can at times. So there's, um, it, it kind of, things up. that kind of made me think, uh, uh, this summer could be an interesting, uh, it could be an interesting legislative time because if Roe is overturned or it's thrown back mm-hmm. to the states, um, we are a part-time legislature, like you were saying earlier, and and so we're only in session for three months. Well, if Roe is thrown back to the states, and now states get to decide what their law is, mm-hmm. that means we won't be in session to be able to right. decide this. And and so the governor is the only one who can call the uh, General Assembly back into session outside of the normal January mm-hmm. through March time. So in Indiana, under our Constitution. 
So the um, the governor is not necessary. He's he's pro life. At least he generally errs on that side. But I don't see him as being a strong conservative at all. I don't think he he's kind of beholden to the teachers union. I think he would probably not do anything if I had to guess. So we're coming into a time now where the the legislature could get called back in or or may not. But if they do, let's just say the governor says no. Roe was overturned. We need a special session because we got we got to figure out now what's going on with abortion in Indiana. Mm-hmm. What would happen? And you said kind of the walkout is what made me. Sp- think this way um what would happen if the the democrats didn't come back because we have a supermajority, we could still do business yes, right yes, yeah. now if we didn't have a supermajority and we right. weren't able to get a quorum right would they they could stay they could stay out and then we wouldn't be able to do right. business but then couldn't the governor send the state troopers to, out to to uh detain yes. them and to bring them back to yes. yeah. so because that happened in was that New York? No, no, that, well, that happened here with right to work. They went to Illinois. That's right. And, yeah, and um, because they were in Illinois, that we I don't think we could send our state police to get them. Okay, but they they sent a couple back finally because the polling numbers were so bad against that, and they, that's when they lost. They got creamed the next, the next election for walking out because people are like, we're paying them and they're not there. Yeah, It's one thing. It's not whether or not you agree with right to work. It's you need to be there. People didn't like paying legislators for being in a hotel yeah. in, in Illinois. So um, so it's not a real good political strategy. No, no it's a, okay. it's, a, it's kind of a one-time show of yeah. opposition. You know, yeah. It's one thing if you, if you walk out and come back the next day and, and mess things. And that happens at the end of the session sometimes. You'll have people walk out when they're up on a deadline and the bills die because the session ends, that's when a walkout can be effective. Okay. But they walked out for weeks on end and people did not like that. And they, they haven't had their numbers haven't been ever, that big ever since. When was uh, right to work during Mitch Daniels uh, governorship. So it's probably, I'm going to guess 10 years ago. That's probably when we got the supermajority then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The we've next, had two, we have a supermajority for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is rather discouraging because, what have they done? But that's another, <laughs> that's right. that's another like, show. I did say to somebody, yeah. hasn't it been 20 years? I mean, yeah. do you really think that's going to happen? Well, the, and here's my fear, well, not fear, but my concern sort of for the Republicans, but I'm also going to call every single one of them up and told them, I told you so, but they've, they've kind of like what happened out in Congress when uh, we got Trump and both houses and they didn't do anything with it. You right. know, they, they basically like sat on their hands and twiddled their thumbs and that's what's happening in Indiana right now. We have the supermajority, and they're not doing anything with it. Mm-hmm. And and I feel like the Republicans tend to say, "Well, we want to be diplomatic, and we need to. We really need to just kind of do things slowly. We don't want to rush things through because when we get out of power, we don't want the Democrats to do the same thing to us." I'm Which like, "Oh laughable. my gosh!" I've like, been there when the Democrats have been in charge. They don't they, care. They rule with an iron fist. Yes. Yeah. And see, the difference between Republicans, conservatives, and Democrats and liberals is Democrats and liberals don't think for themselves. They do whatever leadership tells them to do so they're very unified and they can get a lot done because they're looking that all they're doing is repeating whatever leadership says to do whereas conservatives and republicans we are the independent minded thinking people don't tell me how to think i don't even care if you're the leader of my caucus in the republican party don't tell me how to think which is can be our strength that's the don't tread on me spirit the individual mentality of freedom and liberty but it also is very detrimental because we can never be unified. We're always yep. we're always in these factions and we're always fracturing our the votes and the support. And so that's the downside to we see this in local elections, school board elections all the time in Indiana, where we have four or five good conservative candidates and no one wants to coalesce around one mm-hmm. one candidate. 
And then the left just does what the teachers union says, said vote for this person because we told you soon. They're like, vote for this person because we were told to, right? And they go along and do it. And then they win because, not because they had a greater number of votes, but because we had four candidates that split a large vote down to basically nothing. And they were able just to get in because they were unified. So that that's right. really frustrating. But don't you think also that the the fact that Indiana is so red that it has created this kind of free rider problem where we we were on autopilot for so long yeah. that people weren't paying attention because I, now with all the citizens groups that have formed and all kinds of public engagement, citizen engagement, which I think is wonderful, um, people have been calling saying, well, what about your school board? Well, what about our school board uh, in Westfield? We were watching before it became popular to watch. So we know that it's pretty conservative. Um, and the same has happened kind of with city councils across Hamilton County. Um, and even at, we, we're coming up on a county election this year. And really, there's only one seat being challenged because uh, people, maybe they're so busy watching what's happening at, happening at the state level and school boards They've missed this big faction in between. And so to be truly engaged means to kind of put yourself out there and quit relying on the activists. Um, you know, I think any, anybody who's involved in a volunteer organization knows you have those that do and those that just attend, like yeah. churches. Oh, yeah. Life churches. 80% of the people. Not the same. 80% of the work is done by 20% yeah. of the the people well yeah. and actually i just uh, read an academic paper yesterday that says says it's 25 percent, but i ch would challenge that i agree it's it's probably less than 25 probably, right maybe. i'll oh, take 30, as a pastor 10. i'll take i'll take 20 percent. i was like right. man that's a good number well and life church <laughs> is such not a good example because we have so many people who are willing to to be active here here at your church but um i just like to see people get engaged in the process and if not understanding the process is part of the education, then I guess that is the goal of today's podcast anyway, and I'd like to yeah. continue doing that. That's great. Well, Mike, I know yeah. you want to wrap up soon, but yep. my, uh, I found the verse in the Bible when going through a staff meeting one time, and this we posted this in our office, and I think it's relevant for today. This is AFA's internal Bible verse for our staff. Okay. Psalm 119.46 says, I will speak your statutes before kings and will not be ashamed. Mm, I love it. And so that is that is what we're called to do. We're called to speak up. We're called to let our voices heard. Speak for the for those who can't speak for themselves, like the unborn. But uh, make sure your voice is heard through phone calls, email, emails. If you can testify, testify. And through relationships with, le with legislators, don't be intimidated. They're just like you. They're, yeah. Um, but uh, a lot of times they're even more insecure than you are, mm -hmm. and they just are covering it up with this big bad like bully kind of, you know, mentality. But I love that, Micah, because I, people ask me. They said, "What can we do? Tell me what I can do to engage." And the first thing I always tell them is, said, "Open your voice. Open your mouth and let your voice be heard." Mm -hmm. Because because we are made in God's image, and how does God do anything? He speaks it into existence and he changes. His word changes everything. And and so if we're made in his image, then guess what? He's already shown us how to make change. Open your mouth and speak. And this is one of the reasons why I feel like the the silent majority, that is such a that that saddens me when I hear that because it's like, man, that is a church. The majority in America, the church, good people, they don't recognize the power of their voice. And if we would just open our mouths and speak, and speak God's truth, not ours, God's truth, 
then we will see change. And I think what's encouraging is that we're seeing that more and more. I think 2020, 2021 was, was God's mercy on America, even though COVID has been very hard and it's, it's, it's been detrimental to a lot of people and a lot of families, I'm not downplaying that at all. But I do think it's God's mercy on America where he says, Hey, I'm, I'm shaking America so that my people begin to engage again, because we had not been engaged to Marla's point. We've been sitting on the sidelines, twiddling our thumbs and we blame the legislators, but it's not their fault because it's we, the people, who govern ourselves. That's right. And if we put bad people in, in office who do bad things, then we have no one to blame but ourselves. I say all the time, we blame Washington for everything. Washington's just a microcosm mm-hmm. of us. Yep. Uh, so we got to turn that mirror inward and start looking at us. And so, so open your mouth. If you're listening to this, just speak God's truth. Know the process. Hosea says, my people perish for lack of knowledge. Know the process, get knowledgeable, educate yourself, and then begin to speak. And you're going to see great, great change happen that, that will blow your mind. I'm telling you, God will use you in powerful ways. Just speak it out. And, uh, and, and, and we're going to, we're, we're going to see America return to, uh, a, a, a very amazing place by God's grace and God's mercy. So, uh, Micah Clark from American Family Association, thank you for being thank here. You. Yep, Marla Ayler, uh, Westfield activist mama bear, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll do more of these uh, process-oriented uh, podcasts because people need to know. So, hope you guys are having a wonderful start to 2022. We will be back with some incredible episodes this year Hope you're excited. I know we are. Until next time, we will catch you on the flip side. Hope you uh, stay speaking truth boldly. Don't back down. Learn the process. We'll see you later. This has been Jesus, Sex, and Politics. I'm Micah. Nathan's not here. He'll be back. And we talk about all those things culture doesn't want to talk about. That will probably scare you. See you later.